Good morning again. My name is still Sean, and I'm one of your teaching elders here. Uh, this morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 11. If you want to turn there in your own Bibles or open it up in your smartphones or it's printed for you on page 11 in your bulletin. And then there's a kid's translation on the very next page, page 12, that I'll be referring to throughout as well. Boys and girls, if you're still here in the service with us, you're going to want to uh, have that in front of you. We'll be looking at that together. So we've been walking through uh, a series called No More Goat Dragging using the book of Hebrews primarily as a way to look at this idea of us taking our efforts, us taking our earnestness to God and not fully resting on Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. And today we're going to be looking at one of the results of that that is very prevalent and yet often not spoken about that much, and that is the reality of depression in the life of a Christian. So I want to start out with a quote from a man I'm a big fan of. If you've been to my office, you know I'm a big fan of Winston Churchill. And he said this. He said, I like pigs. Dogs look up to us. Cats look down on us. Pigs treat us as equal. He said this while what he called his black dog days, one of the days that he struggled with depression throughout his whole life. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist pastor from a previous generation than Winston, Admitted often, have up here, quote, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. Spurgeon goes on to say, Ceaseless or causeless depression cannot be reasoned with, as well as fight with the mist as with this shapeless, undefinable, yet all beclouding hopelessness. Spurgeon concluded by describing depression as a prison. He borrowed that imagery from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is a classic of literature, which was written from a prison cell by a depressed man, John Bunyan, who was worried sick over the the state of his family while he was arrested. And, And Bunyan honestly writes about the reality of what so many Christians experience but are afraid to talk about, depression. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've struggled with depression But you would be shocked at how many would if I did. So, let me introduce you to somebody. I want to introduce you to a character from Pilgrim's Progress. His name is Giant Despair. Giant Despair lives in Doubting Castle. He imprisons Christian and Hopeful, locks them in a dungeon in the the book, and after three days of daily beatings with no food or no water, Giant despair shows them, and that's what this picture right here is, he shows them how many pilgrims he has killed. And he tries to convince them that their only escape is for them to kill themselves. That's the grip of despair. And notice how the artist captures this. Can you see the hands of giant despair? Notice how he's got his hands around their neck. Just completely bound, locking God's people in doubting castle. Bunyan captures it so well, doesn't he? We tend to think that depression and suicidal thoughts are some sort of modern malady, but here this text is hundreds of years old, and he captures the human heart so well. You see, the Bible is clear that Satan hates the church, and one of his big weapons is depression, hopelessness. And and many Christians are incredibly afraid to mention this, and so what do we do? We suffer silently. Now, before we jump into this, I want to give a big caveat here. Depression is not a sin, and often it is an illness. We're going to look at some heart aspects of depression, 
But that does not mean that for some of you, you need to go to the doctor. You need to get yourself some Wellbutrin and get your happy back. And there's nothing unbiblical about doing that. Because Christians can be assaulted by despair. They can lay in a prison of doubt. And today I want to bring that out into the open. Because Christians are susceptible to doubt and fear, and we should not be ashamed or embarrassed about that. So we've been using the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is balm for the hurting soul, a soul struggling to have joy in the Christian life. We Christians get caught up into believing that we are saved by grace, but then we live the rest of our Christian life under God's frown in a goat-dragging mentality, thinking that we are not performing enough for God, that we haven't done enough for God to really like us, for God to really give us a good life. And then... In the hard parts of life, when we feel discontentment, when things aren't going well, because we think we should have earned a good life, we must be doing something wrong, and it opens us up to giant despair, and it leads us into depression. The book of Hebrews calls us to stop striving and instead believe God's promises. And chapter 11 lists example after example of what faith in God's promises looks like, especially in the middle of struggle and depression. So if you are able, would you please stand with me as we read God's Word together from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. This is God's Word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of God of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and from him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, 
They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself to us, Lord, so that we may know you. We may know your truth. We may know your gospel and taste of your grace. We ask even now you would send your spirit and open this text up to us, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, so our theme for today, the thing we're going to be working towards, the thing you can talk about at lunch afterwards is this. Faith is not a feeling. It is power from God's promises. And so we'll see in this passage that faith believes, faith obeys, and faith endures because of God's promises. So let's jump in. Verses 1 through 6 shows us that faith believes God's promises. It starts out by answering the question, what is faith? And it opens with a list of characteristics. This is not like a definitive definition of faith. This is just some of the characteristics of biblical faith. It's assurance of hope. It's conviction of something better. Now, boys and girls, assurance, conviction, those are weird words to use for faith. So here's how we put it for you. I want you guys to look with me at your verse 1. Here's what it says. It says this. It says, faith is what hope is made of and the proof of what is not seen. You ever wonder where faith comes from? Well, the Bible says, or where hope comes from, the Bible says that hope is made of faith. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? It's not a feeling, but it's really believing when God makes a promise. Now, for those of us in the room who aren't children, and for the rest of our greater culture, we don't like that second part, do we? That if you can't see it, it's not proof. What do you mean it's the proof of something not seen? We want to see it. Let us measure it, right? Let us touch it. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, in the Wall Street Journal, there was an article about a TikTok video. So TikTok's been in the news. Hopefully you've heard of it. If you don't know exactly what it is, if you're over 50, you find someone under 30, they'll explain it to you. So anyway, this TikTok video went viral. And in it, this um, probably late-age teenage girl is questioning the reality of algebra. She does it in a very funny way, and it caused quite a reaction, so much so that it made an article in the Wall Street Journal. And here's what made it newsworthy. In the article, several outstanding mathematicians weighed in, and they actually pointed out that uh, actually there is a huge disconnect between algebraic formulas based on logic and real-world measurements based on physics and measuring. So she's not exactly wrong. These are mathematicians saying this. In other words, both faith and algebra are the conviction of things not seen. We do this all the time in our culture. We just think, oh, faith is religious stuff. And you have people who have faith and people who are smart. No. Believing God's promises is not easy. That's part of the reason that it's, it's a proof of things not seen. But guess what? Having faith in God's promises has always been hard. The Roman culture that the people who read the book of Hebrews for the first time, the Roman culture they lived in thought having faith was ridiculous. An ancient pastor from the first century, writing very shortly after this book was written, says this, if you'll allow me to kind of translate it into vernacular, he says, quote, they always make fun of our faith. This is somebody writing in the first century. See, for the ancient Romans, only uneducated simpletons had faith. Kind of sounds like being a Christian in a blue state, doesn't it? 
Anyway, that's a different issue. So these Hebrew Christians basically lived in a culture that asked, why are you letting yourself be persecuted for a faith? Why would you give money to a faith? And it was in the midst of such derision that believers in the past lived out of faith. They endured persecution. They did not shrink back. Like them in the trials and the hardships of the Christian walk, we need ongoing faith. And faith is what hope is made of. So we need faith and we need hope. Why do we need hope? Because things are not right, are they? We are not satisfied here, and we're not supposed to be satisfied here. Here, Life causes discontent by design. A tension between the world that we want and the world that is. And it doesn't matter whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you look at life from the right or from the left. You have an ideal you want, and the world doesn't match it. And you know what that's called when you stand in between that? Stress, tension, anxiety. We want something better. And that discontent is what makes us vulnerable to depression, vulnerable to giant despair trapping us. But by faith, we can get back out of it again because faith is believing God's promises. So this is in the text. So verse 3 tells us that creation reveals God's existence. And then God graciously reveals his specific promises in his word, the text tells us. So we have information on which to base our hope. Biblical faith is not a leap from dark into more dark. It's not blind trust. It's not the power of positive thinking. Biblical faith has an object. It's the Word of God. So, faith in the Scriptures is the foundation and proof of what we cannot see. And verse 4 gives us a great example. Let's all look at verse 4 together. It says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Okay, for those of you who are unfamiliar, in the, at the very beginning of the biblical narrative, Cain and Abel were the first sons of Adam and Eve. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a rancher, and when it came time for them to offer worship to their creator, Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. And verse 4 is put here as proof of the objective reality of God's word. Because we have suffered under generations of looking at the story of Cain and Abel through goat-dragging lenses, and so we miss the point. From the very beginning, a relationship with God has not been about earnestness. It has not been about the efforts of the worshiper. Abel remembered he was taught that when mom and dad sinned, God killed an animal to cover them. Blood was now shed to approach God after the fall. And so what did he do? He brought a bloody sacrifice to worship God. Cain did not. See, it shows us that faith is a reality. It's a truth more than a feeling. Sin needed blood, not just fervency, not just sincerity. Cain offered what he had worked very hard on. He was earnest. The text of Genesis does not say his heart wasn't in it or that he held back. We put that in there because we look at it from a goat-dragging mentality. Rather, Hebrews 11 helps us see the truth through the gospel. No, Cain did not think he needed to cover his sin to come to God because he did not believe God's word. Abel did, Cain didn't. So here's the question, do we believe God's word? 
Do we believe that God has provided Jesus as a covering for our sins? You see, if we are stuck in trying to perform for God what we've been calling goat dragging, we don't believe God's word. So we're looking to ourselves, we're looking to our efforts, and we are easy, easy prey for giant despair. See, but by faith, we, we have seen, actually no, by faith we believe in something we have not seen, right? How many of us have seen the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? None of us. But that is the proof of God's love for us. And so faith is the essence of that which is not seen. It's the proof of that which is not seen. And so we believe the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of his people. That way, we can be like Abel and find acceptance before God. Because we believe the gospel that blood must be shed. And God has provided the ultimate shedding of blood in his son, Jesus. See, we have to have this kind of faith to be with God. That's not me, that's the author of Hebrews. Look with me at verse 6. says this, says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. See, we must recognize our sin before a holy God and we must long for him. Actually, a better translation of that last little phrase there would be crave instead of seek. That God rewards those who crave. It's more of a visceral energy to this word. You see, our ultimate longings, the discontent that we feel. I don't feel like I fit in my own skin. I don't feel like I fit in this culture. I don't feel like I, I just don't feel right. And those ultimate longings, when that discontentment comes, if we don't turn to the living God, craving him as our heart's desire, we will end up in depression. We will end up in despair. Here's how we put it for the kids. I want you guys to make sure you're tracking with me. Boys and girls, let's look at your verse six. It says this. It says, without faith... We goat drag to please God, but it is powerless. We cannot be close to God without believing his promises to those who crave him. You see, for all of us, our discontent in life is supposed to make us crave something better, someone better. Instead of, us, instead of leading us into despair, our disappointments should lead us to craving God. Just as an aside here, kind of applying this to where we are as a church, embracing discontent is essential for a multi-generational church. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your tastes. Here's my guarantee to you. 30% of the time, you're not going to like something we do because it's aimed at the other 70%. And that discontent can either draw you closer to God as you embrace it for the sake of others? Or if you refuse to embrace that discontentment, it will drive you further from God and further from others. Are you ready to try on some discontentment? You ready to take it out for a test drive? So your session just decided that we are going to be better listeners on racial issues so that we can lead this church to be a more diverse congregation reflecting the diversity of our community. So one of the things we are doing is we're reading some books together and having discussion about racial issues. And this week has been hard for racial issues. The Breonna Taylor verdict was released the, earlier this week. I do not know all the facts that the Kentucky Attorney General knew. And anybody who thinks they do, they do is lying and being arrogant about it. But here's what we do know. An innocent woman is dead. Many of our African-American brothers and sisters are hurting 
and weeping. We are absolutely called to weep with those who weep. And we know that God has revealed himself as a God who loves justice. And we can't just ignore a broken justice system. You see, this text reminds us that biblical Christianity covers all of life. We can't just have our religious component and say, well, that's earthly stuff. That doesn't matter. The church is about what Sunday morning. No, that's not true. Biblical faith covers all of life. If we are enthralled at God's grace, we will want more of him in our lives and in our nation. We will see that protecting the dignity of God's image bearers upholds God's glory. And we will want that. However, if we are exhausted from our religious efforts, from our goat dragging, we don't care about God's glory. Nor do we think much about protecting the dignity of his image in other people. See, but biblical Christianity, anchored in grace through faith, believes God's promises and it changes us and it changes our world. So next we see in verses 7 through 12 that faith obeys because of God's promises. For obedience, the writer says, hey, look at Noah. People thought he was crazy. But Noah believed, even though unseen, he believed that the flood was coming. He believed the ark would save his family. And so he worked in fearful, reverent faith. Next, the writer points to Abraham. Enormous promises from God given to Abraham. And without anything in his sight to confirm those promises, he stepped out in faith and trust. He left his city with his entire family to live in tents, hoping for something better. And did you catch that? He was hoping for something better. Abraham was discontent too. Abraham was in the land God promised him. He walked in obedience. He got there and it was not satisfying. He was discontent. He didn't feel at home in his own skin. He didn't feel at home in this land. He didn't feel at home in this culture. He was craving his ultimate home. He was not having his best life now in the promised land. And it could have led him to depression, but it didn't. Why not? Because he believed God and that empowered his obedience, even when he was discontent. He lived by faith in the land, knowing it was not supposed to satisfy him. See, instead of questioning God's goodness and getting depressed, he lived by faith. Now, dear Christian, are you sad? Are you in despair? Are you doubting? Are you depressed? Do you feel you just don't fit? Are you asking things like, God, why are you doing this to me? You are letting me down. I need you, and you're not here. See, the answer is not to rest in the trite promises on Christian social media. The answer is not to try harder. That's goat dragging. The answer is to believe God's promise of grace to you. Unfortunately, in our discontentment, instead of craving God, we crave relief, don't we? Just make it end. And so we look to other sources for help. And when they eventually disappoint, which they will, we get depressed and even suicidal. And I'm not taking that to an extreme. There has been story after story in the last month and a half. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, that the CDC released a survey in early August showing that suicidal thoughts have exploded during the pandemic. People are overwhelmed and without hope. You can feel it, can't you? 
you're out there, if you're in conversation with non-Christians, or if you're on social media, you can feel it. Hopelessness means giant despair is sneaking up on you. Our culture is suffering through hopelessness. Students in the room, the CDC study says that these suicidal thoughts are especially prevalent in teenagers. I just want to say, students, if that's you, it's cards on the table. I've been there. I get it. And if you need to talk, I'm available. Marty is available. Evan and Allie are available. There are people in your life who care for you, who are available. You are not alone. You see, Hebrews 11 reminds us that God does not promise us happiness. He doesn't promise us a lack of struggle. But if we live in a goat-dragging mentality, we think that our religious activity has earned us a good life, an easy life. And so that makes us deal very poorly with disappointment. It makes us easy prey for depression. But Christianity says that God has made many, many promises, and they are all yes and amen in Jesus. And so united to Jesus, we get a taste of joy here, but we recognize our ultimate joy lies somewhere else. We live here in tents, longing for a homeland, a city built by God. You see, this world cannot meet your deepest cravings, is what Hebrews 11 wants you to see. And if we expect it to meet our deepest cravings, we are not living by faith. That makes us miserable, it makes us joyless, and it makes us open to depression and despair. But if we believe God's word, we'll see in verses 13 through 16, faith endures to God's promises. Now look at me at verse 13. This is such a great verse of scripture. It says this, says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The ESVs died in faith there is a rare miss for the ESV. It doesn't quite do the Greek justice. The NIV actually captures it better when it says, all these were still living by faith when they died. They persevered to the end. They believed God's word. They did not shrink back so they were acceptable to God. I want you all to understand kind of the emotion behind this verse. So let's all look at the kids' translation of verse 13. Here's how we put it. It says, all these people died in faith, believing but not seeing the promises and knowing that this world was not going to make them happy. You see, these faithful people in Hebrews 11 admitted this world was not supposed to satisfy them. If we assume that we're supposed to fit here, that we're supposed to be satisfied by this world, we open ourselves up to frustration and despair. Because we don't see ourselves as aliens and strangers, we assume that trials and sadness for the Christian are not normal. And the people in Hebrews 11 would be like, that is the Christian life. It is trial. It is sadness. What do you think Jesus meant when he said, take up your execution chamber? I mean, your, your hangman's news. I mean, your cross and follow me. It's not a call to your best life now. But it is a call to Jesus' life now. See, a community of strangers gets that. But a community of goat draggers, when life stinks, 
when you fall into doubt, we fall into depression because we assume no one else in the church will understand because goat draggers have to have it all together. But a community of aliens and strangers gets it. Life is hard, especially when you don't fit in. Oh, dear flock, so many of us are under assault from giant despair. But we're afraid to talk about it, aren't we? Because Christians aren't supposed to have problems. But aliens and strangers have problems. And knowing that, there's hope, there's healing. Notice here in the text, Abraham and his family confessed they were strangers. They owned that reality. They were not embarrassed by it, they embraced it. And God was honored by their willingness. That's what verse 16 says. Look at me at verse 16. It says, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Oh, did you catch the phrasing there, that last part? It's amazing. God has prepared. God is not ashamed of us. When we believe God's promises, when we obey because of God's promises, when we endure to God's promises, we prove that we have been born again through Jesus and that his death has covered our sins and that his resurrection empowers our life now. And because we are thus united to Jesus by faith, God himself looks at us and says, Precious daughter, dear son, I'm so proud of you. See, the balm for depression is the approval of God over you. And not just the approval, but the utter delight that God promises he has for you. I really want to zero in on that idea of delight, that that God delights over you. God reveals himself as father. And so the best way to understand this is the parent-child relationship. But unfortunately for many of you, that relationship has been far from appealing and uplifting. And you you just don't feel it the way other people feel it when they talk about a father's love or a mother's love. And I'm so sorry. This has been kind of heavy. So I want to try a, a different, more lighter take on this substantial issue. I want to introduce you to a furry member of our family. This is Bailey. We love her. She's great. There are times when she is just so adorable, we can barely stand it, and delight simply overflows. There's shrieks of joy. There's embraces of kindness. There's, she's so fluffy. There's faces being buried into fur. And it goes both ways. Bailey's favorite thing to do is to wake up the three younger children every day. She is so excited. Her tail is a blur, and I don't know how a dog this little can move as fast as she does to lick three faces. It's amazing. And of course, like all dogs, when we leave the house, it doesn't matter whether it's five years or five minutes, right? Upon our return, she just is overjoyed and excited like she hasn't seen us in forever. It's contagious. Her joy, even though she's a dog, is palpable. It's delightful. Could it be if God really is the creator of all things, if the biblical picture of God is true, could it be that God gave us pets, especially dogs, to give us a taste of the delight that he takes in us? Now, if you're stuck in the you know, 17th century Scottish Elizabethan picture of, of a God who eschews all emotions, that's a stretch for you, I know. But the biblical picture of God shows that he takes such sheer delight in us that he dances over us. And I can proof text that if you need me to. See, if that doesn't temper your despair or weaken your depression, I don't know what will. 
You see, goat dragging leads us to depression because we are basing our worth not in Jesus, but in our efforts and our activity. And we never feel like we've done enough. And so we never think God delights in us. And we certainly don't delight in him. We're too exhausted to. But in the gospel, we are reminded Jesus did this work in Hebrews 11. He did live by faith to the end. He did die in faith, looking for something better. And God's approval of him was proved in his resurrection. And the promise then is that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we're united to him. His faithful life becomes our faithful life. And God approves us because he approves his son. He doesn't look at our struggles and say, you're such a faithless wimp. He looks at his beautiful son who's the epitome of faith, we're united to him and he sees his beloved son in whom he's well pleased and he delights in us. That's exactly how Bunyan, by the way, gets hopeful out of the dungeon of Doubting Castle. After languishing for days, suddenly Christian remembers and he says this, he says, What a fool I have been to lie here like this in a stinking dungeon when I could have just as well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called promise that will open any lock in Doubting Castle. So he takes the key out and he tries it in a lock. It's a picture of actually believing the promise and it opens the door. He tries the key on his chains, his chains fall off and every door in Doubting Castle is unlocked by the promise and he and Hopeful walk out free. Oh dear flock, If you are in despair, if you are doubting, if you're in depression, do not think you're alone. Do not think you're an abnormal or a bad Christian. You are experiencing the life of an alien and stranger. And so as one who cannot possibly be satisfied in life here, look in faith to the promises of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has lived the faithful life you should have lived. And even though he still believed, he absorbed your faithless life and he died the death you should have died. And he has gone away in his resurrection to prepare a place that is perfect for us. Where where we will have unspeakable joy, where we will fit and not have discontentment. That's the promise. Believe it. Rejoice in it and remind each other of it often. Let's pray together. How gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your promises of grace. Lord, we thank you that you come to us with promises to break us out of prison and set us free. And Lord, I pray for the person right now who's dealing with depression, the person who contemplated suicide just last night. Lord, I pray that you would come to them with the balm of your approval and delight in Jesus, and that they would believe that promise, that in Jesus you delight in them. Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to those of us who do struggle with depression. We pray that you would help us to believe, that you would help us, Father, to trust, and that you would deliver us from guilt, you would deliver us from looking to our own efforts, and that we would trust. Lord, we pray that you would build your kingdom in us, that our joy might abound, and that we might spread your joy to our neighbors. 
And we ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.